KUT's AT Explained is back with a brand new season. Our first episode, what's up with that tower in Clarksville? I've heard it called the Clarksville Eiffel Tower, the tower, the leaning tower of Clarksville, all those names. Subscribe to AT Explained wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our next AT Explained live show at the Paramount Theater on April 3rd. Brand new stories told live on stage. Get your tickets at austintheater.org. Support for AT Explained Live comes from Meals on Wheels Central Texas and World Interiors. From KUT and KUTX Studios. And welcome to This Song, the podcast where artists talk about the songs that changed their lives and give us a glimpse into their creative process. We here at Team This Song are on vacation, so we're taking a break from new episodes just for this week, but we wanted to give you this rerun of an episode we did with Eric Early and Brian Koch from Blitz and Trapper. They're coming to our fair city of Austin, Texas on Thursday, February 22nd to play Antones as part of our fifth birthday series here at KUTX. Yes, KUTX, the radio station where we make this podcast, is going to turn five years old and we're going to spend all of 2018 celebrating. You should totally come to the show at Antones. You can find details at the events page of our website, kutx.org. Now, Blitz and Trapper are a Portland-based band. They've been bringing their Americana-tinged rock to the people since the mid-2000s. They have a new album out called Wild and Reckless, and it's both straight ahead and weird at the same time. And that mix of traditional and, like, darkly idiosyncratic is something that singer-songwriter and guitar player Eric Early has been into for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, I grew because I grew up listening to just like whatever my parents listened to, you know. Yeah. It's a lot of folk music and then some church music and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean I guess in I guess in high school when I was a freshman mm-hmm. I just have such vague memories at that time. But at some point I heard an R. E. M. song I think, because they were my favorite band and they're the ones that kinda changed turned me into someone that listened to rock on like a fan level instead of just like, oh yeah. It was probably something from Out of Time, because that came out when I was a freshman. So Out of Time, that's the one with um, Losing My Religion? Yeah, it's a huge record, you know, the one that breaks through, really. Oh, life is bigger, it's bigger than you, and you are not me. The links that I will go to, the distance in you. Were you watching MTV? Because I remember that was just a big like no, we MTV didn't have cable. Oh, whoa, right on. Yeah. Oh, we never had cable when I was a kid. We had a three channel. Oh wow! Oh. Even in even in the like early early nineties. Yeah, there was probably five channels by then. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you probably do you think you heard it on the radio or do you did a friend? Yeah, it would have been the radio. You? It would have been the radio, and then a friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had this buddy named Josh back then who was a couple years older and he was in a lot of like these punk and rock stuff that I wouldn't have ever heard you know the kind of stuff that back then the only way you'd know about it was by you know having older brothers and stuff like that which I didn't have right oh I mean because there was no, no internet, internet. Yeah. yeah there was no there's no internet uh, yeah I don't even know how people 
would find out about records back then other than you just go into the record store and look at the titles and the pictures and be like, oh, that's a cool picture, you know? <laughs> yeah, or, I mean, I, I didn't have any older siblings, but I did have, like, a cool older friend who right. introduced me to, like, The Cure and Depeche Mode mm-hmm. and R.E.M. And so... That's exactly what I had. He's my buddy Josh, yeah. And he introduced me to The Cure. Show me, show me, show me. The funny thing is that I could relate to it somehow, just like dumb, you know, kid from this backwater state, backwater town. That, you know, I was like, and I think the reason R.E.M. resonated was because it had sort of these country elements to it. There's pedal steel. There was stuff that I was, I knew and understood, you know. <laughs> Did you grow up listening to it? You said, you said folk and some church music, but was country in there too? Yeah, that... yeah, country music, folk music, and more kind of just the, you know, because my dad was into like Count Van Zandt, John Prine, Bob Dylan. A real singer-songwriter. like. Yeah, more singer-songwriter, more kind of lyrical-based type stuff. And then he was also into like old, you know, Doc Watson and stuff. Blue Railroad Train Going down the railroad track It makes me feel so doggone blue To listen to that old smokestack Drivers are rolling on Leaving me here behind Give me back them good old days And let me ramble down the line Yeah, I think I started playing the banjo at about five. Because it was sm- it's a smaller neck. Right. My dad taught me to finger pick when I was real young. Basically, as soon as I could could actually do it. He oh. taught me the different picking patterns, Travis Pick and some of the other stuff. And so by the time you were in high school and you heard R.E.M., you, I mean, you were pretty probably adept musically. Like, you understood oh, yeah. theory and you could play a bunch of instruments. Um, I didn't necessarily understand theory. I did a little bit because I had some lessons. I understood more just sort of the way the whole thing worked. And, uh, and also, I, I was playing along to records a lot of the time, all kinds of records, you know, Christian records, church records. Um, old Crosby, Stills, and Nash built to real eight tracks of like Bob Dylan. You know, I would just play along to whatever crap was laying around. So that way, I, I learned a lot, probably the most. Actually. One morning, I woke up and I knew it all. A new day, a new way, and new eyes. about R.E.M. like as opposed to everything else that you had heard before because you were exposed to a lot of like serious good deep music and then you hear R.E.M. Yeah. and there was something there's something you can touch like reach back and touch into the country elements but what was new about it like what hit you um I mean because I think it was it was rock but it wasn't super hard it wasn't like metal like I never really had too much of a metal phase you know, I, it was more just like, oh, yeah, this is rock, but there's also these country elements. And then lyrically, um, I just really liked his lyrics because they were vague and they were always talking about sort of these kind of weird, strange, decaying sort of environments and images and stuff. I think it more than anything just reflected on the place I grew up in. Oh, how so? I mean, I think that Michael Stipe was always writing about the, the South and its sort of decay. Mm-hmm. and sort of the darkness of it. 
And Oregon was basically the exact same thing back in the 80s and early 90s. Really? You know, no one had moved there yet. No one lived there. We, you know, It was 10 years behind everywhere else. And where I grew up was just this little, it was Salem. And I grew up north of town in a place called Hayesville. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was literally just backwater. Like there was no fashion. There was no, I mean, we would find music five, six years later, you know. <laughs> it was kind of like one of those places. And for me, the music of R.E.M., it just made sense in that place. You know, I mean, there was a whole waterfront area that was derelict, filled with old um, train cars that people lived in, like homeless people lived in. And, oh, wow. I mean, it was just a place that was cool, and we would ride our bikes around, and, you know, it was just farmland, and then old, you know, the city was kind of falling apart at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, in the late 90s, that all started to change, you know, and then, you know, in the last six, seven years, it's completely changed. And the place I grew up in is gone, you know, it's they, built over. This could be the saddest dusk you've ever seen Turn to a miracle I lie My mind is racing As it always will My hands tired, my heart aches You were playing a bunch of instruments when you heard R.E.M. and you kind of related it sounds like you related really to the sounds, but ver- like a lot to the lyrics and a lot to the lyrical content. I think lyrically, I always looked to Michael Stipe's lyrics. Their vagueness, their art, their poetry. You know, because his lyrics were poetry. They weren't so much just straightforward love song, you know, this or that, like you'd hear in Top 40 Radio. It was like these weird, strange, dark tales, you know. You're like, what is he talking about? And obtuse. I mean, it's really, yeah, yeah. 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 It's really it. hard to I mean, to they like... had their hits. They had their hits, too. I mean... Shiny happy people. Stand in the place where you live. You know, and that was the thing, I think. He could write hits, but he could also write these really dark two songs where you're just like, man, that's so cool, you know? And was there a particular song from that record that you were like, that one? Like, Losing My yeah, Religion? Yeah, there was a couple. No, there was a couple, like, the, the more obscure songs, like the song Country Feedback, I mm-hmm. love that song. I was central, I had control, I lost my head, I need this, I need this. Paperweight, junk garage, winter rain, a honey pot, crazy, all the lovers have been tapped. And the song Low. You and me. We know about time. We know how things go. They come and go. They live and grow. They pass and go. Glow and glow. Up down. Another two dark, dark, you know, deep cuts of the record that. Most people probably haven't even heard, but they were just great pieces of just, you know, early American, you know, 90s Americana, basically. Yeah. So it sounds like around this time, around 14, that was when you kind of got into rock. Like, yeah. you went from country and folk and, like, playing banjo and slide guitar to, like, did you pick up a, an electric guitar around that time? And well, then... I, got, I got my first electric when I was, like, nine, I think, nine or ten, <laughs> just like an old 
not old, it was new, but it was just like a crappy $200 butt rock guitar. It was an 80s guitar. I mean, it was 1986 or something, yeah. 85, you know. Um, but then in about 89, my dad bought me, an, you know, a 1972 Fender Telecaster, which oh. is a real good. It was a real guitar. How, how old were you when you got a 72 Telecaster? I was 15. <laughs> and back then, of course, it was only $500. <laughs> <laughs> this guitar had been owned by one of the Doobie Brothers. I mean, it was like a real guitar. It was yeah. a great guitar. It was a custom. And, you know, the guy that ran Jim, the guy that ran the guitar shop in town, was buddies with, with my dad. They went to the same church. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, oh, you got to come down and check out this guitar and buy it for Eric. So he did. And, you know, that's when I really started to play and, and it was around the same time that I started getting into all these bands. And so, yeah, I, I had a really good guitar, and I was getting into rock music, and that's kind of what happened. Oh, it's like a perfect storm of, like, getting a really good instrument. Because there is something different about about a really playing on a yeah. really good instrument. I mean, it oh, just yeah. it, it opens up a whole other side of playing. And yeah. um, getting a really good instrument, hearing the right kind of music, it all kind of happened around the same time, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 Blitz and Trapper drummer Brian Koch, on the other hand, was inspired by someone a little closer to home. Well, this might be a an, um, uh, sort of a non-traditional sort of response, but when I think of why I started or how I started getting involved in playing music, um, I go all the way back in my mind to high school when I was burning for years to play and my family refused to let me have any rock instrumentation. Um, because of its um, satanic uh, overtones. Starting from a very early age, I got all my music, not secretly, but just kind of on the down low off of the radio. I I was like an insomniac even as a little kid, just recording. I'd have a cassette ghetto blaster up next to my head behind the pillow, and I had it on record with the pause engaged, and I'd wait for the song that I wanted to hear, and as soon as it it played, I'd, I'd, un, I'd unpause it, and I'd make my own mixtapes that way. You would do that late at night? Yeah, that's that the way. That is such a thing. How old are you? Now? Yeah. I'm 40. You're 40, so I'm 38, and I did the exact same yeah. thing, where you would put the tape in, and you would turn on your radio station, and then you would wait for the yeah. song. And this is before, obviously, I was old, old enough to be a working teenager, so I didn't really have money. And um, Could you have gone out and bought that music? Even if, if ha- I had if the had money? money? No. No. And, I mean, some of it, yeah, because some of it was pop. I mean, I was, as a kid, I, I loved everything. I would listen to New Kids on the Block on the radio. I'd listen to you know, the rock stations, kind of whatever. My family really only owned, um, they only owned, like, my father's collection was was mostly big band music and 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 predominantly lame. You know, I like big band music, but it was you know stuff that I would never listen to as a kid, like, like, like Glenn, real, Glenn, Glenn Campbell like Glenn, yeah. or Smothers Brothers. Yeah, you know, stuff yeah, that yeah. was just not for me. Galveston, oh Galveston, I still hear your sea winds blowing. I still see her dark eyes glowing She was 21 When I left Galveston And the good music that we had belonged to my mom. She had like the Eagles and she would would buy the occasional record for the kids but my dad was dead set against it. In fact, uh, at some point he burned a bunch of the records. Your mom's records? Yeah. See how high she flies. 
pretty contentious. That's that's intense. And uh, so I had to do a lot of it on the sly. And like. And did you play music? Well, like, I played clarinet because I wasn't allowed to play the evil saxophone. Oh no! Yeah. Really? Despite it having the exact same fingerings. Um, my father, I think, he was just under the impression that sax was evil because it was the accompaniment to so much rock and roll in the '80s. Well, he's definitely right that like sax would probably lead to. And it sounds like sex. Yeah, it sounds like sex. It's probably it's like will lead to iniquity. Yeah. Clarinet's yeah, was, probably not gonna. Yeah, he was worried that I would get involved in some kind of sax crime. <laughs> I um so so for going on I think in in high school I started hanging out with friends who played because that was the only way I could be near instrumentation like that mm -hmm. and a lot of my friends were pretty well off and their families would buy them guitars if they wanted to and um and around 14 or 15 my friends uh started putting together bands and I think it was when I was 16 my junior year of high school I want to say that um some real good friends of mine uh put together a band um, one of the bands was called Havoc Cow. Havoc Cow. But they would obviously <laughs> just say Havoc Cow. And, and they all, um, you know, could play pretty rudimentary grunge rock pretty well, and it blew my mind. And I had never seen anybody in my peer group play rock music before, and it totally broke my brain because I was like, this is actually possible. Like, these guys have, haven't been playing very long, and they're really, like, to my mind then, very good, and they're playing, you know, in, in these, like, classrooms in school after school. And they even played at some concerts, and it's like... So it was within maybe a year and a half of that that I met uh, Eric, and he I got some of his demos and uh, was, was astounded that he was playing this really advanced, um, quieter, melodic music that I wasn't really into at the time, like, like more R.E.M. and 10,000 right. Maniacs style. And it was so good, it, it really set me on a different direction, paying more attention to melody. And then I ended up playing in my first band as, as a bass player with, with Eric, who's the singer of Blitz and Trapper. Whoa. I was 18 and he was 16. All the kids are sitting still, strapped inside the Ferris wheel. Wonder what they're gonna feel when they start to turn. So it was actually like Eric's music that kind of like it was the, he was the he was the first uh, songwriter that I played for yeah. yeah yeah that's that's at 18 years old that's pretty incredible so how did you like finally decide to make the leap like to break away from what your parents were were kind of um, putting down like what was it a thing or was it just like this this is so good I just wanted do this I, I, when I was 17 I started sneaking a guitar into the house and. Um, playing it on headphones so that nobody could hear me, you know, learning, trying to learn Nirvana songs and stuff. Yeah. But eventually they saw it, obviously, heard it a little bit, and they were like, this has got to go. My dad had previously said if I brought an electric guitar in the house, he'd burn it. And he didn't. Um, he, I, I, I called his bluff, and he, uh, he backed off. And so I just kept it and started learning how to play that, got an acoustic, got a bass. Bass was my first instrument in a band. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, 
yeah, it just kind of started to slowly snowball from there. And um, and I would say as, an, as a side note, the other thing too, besides those bands that really inspired me was seeing a high school production of Into the Woods where all my peers were also doing this amazing musical. Mother cannot guide you. Now you're on your own. Only me beside you. Still you're not alone No one is alone Truly no one is alone I wish Were they in, you mean in the pit band or like on stage The, the actual actors. Okay. And um, acting is another thing that I do and that, I'm, that I've always been interested in. But it was singing into the woods, seeing my peers do it and do it well. Um, I thought. That, <laughs> yeah. uh, that really inspired me just to start performing and to just to get out of my shell. So it was really coming across people who were your age, mm -hmm. who were doing what mm -hmm. you had this burning desire to do. Yeah. And like people, when you see, when you saw them doing it, it was like, ah, yeah. wait a second. Like if they can do it. Yeah. Damn the consequences. I, I have to do this. Wow. And it made you bold enough to stand up to your father who sounds like you could be kind of a scary dude. Well, it wasn't that he was scary. It was it was just invasive and and um and lame. <laughs> he he's come around in the in the intervening years. Um I'm pretty sure the he had a moment where he um saw us playing Conan O'Brien and didn't I didn't tell him that we were playing. He didn't know. Oh, he just came across it. We had stopped talking about music because it was such a point of contention. Oh, wow. And he was literally lying in bed at night and saw it was channel surfing <laughs> and came across me playing drums on the Conan and and I think that it sort of shattered his preconceived notions that were pretty much religious, but I think also at the heart of it, I think he was just worried that I was setting myself up for a life of poverty, which I have, but that doesn't mean I'm unhappy. I know. Well, that's, that's the, the trade-off is you get to play music, yeah. which is like the, the beautiful thing. Yeah. Like, do you still have any of that early music? I certainly do. Music? Do yeah. you think you could send it to me so I could put it in the podcast um, if he was okay with it? I could ask him, yeah. That would be cool yeah. because it, it, would be, it would be cool to hear, you know, what you heard and uh, what kind of made you think, like, I want to... I don't know that I have the actual cassette that he gave me that had um, the demos, but I have um, the first record that that band made, and a lot of those, there's like, I think, six or seven songs on it, and some of those songs were, the you know, demoed in that cassette. Yeah. But I, ha I certainly have a ton of that stuff. It's like, it's in a... It's in a shoebox that's, that's labeled um, the last cassettes on the earth. <laughs> cassettes on the earth. Yeah, and it's got a, a lot of old throwback stuff on there. So it'll be one day it'll be at least blackmail material or something. <laughs> well, I really I really love that. I I love the uh seeing I mean there is nothing more powerful than seeing other people do it. Yeah, it's, I mean I really is why I'm here, I think, doing what I'm doing. Totally. I needed somebody else to sort of pioneer the the way for me. For well, you it. have to know it can be done. Yeah. You know, like you have to know that it's a possibility and I think so often, like, when we think of music and musicians, it's, like, super famous people who are way, way out of our reach, who it's hard to relate to. Mm -hmm. But it's very easy to relate to, like, yeah. 
my friends up on yeah. stage or my friends playing in a classroom after school. Yeah. Like, this is a thing. Let's, yeah. let's and do I, it. And I, I, I think on, on a couple occasions with those gentlemen, I've tried to communicate to them over the years upon running into them. Like, you don't, maybe you don't realize how important it was that you did what you did, but it was really inspiring. And, and they're all just kind of shrugged it off. Like, oh, whatever. I just, but maybe you can send them this podcast episode and be yeah. like, seriously, guys. Yeah. Like, for yeah. real. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, thank you. I appreciate you coming in and talking. Oh, I can't wait to cut this together. So, cool. thanks a lot. Well, we danced in the back of the pickup truck till the sky turned to roses. Then we drove into town and we danced some more till the ballrooms all were closing. And that red dress, baby. And this is Wild and Reckless from the new Blitz and Trapper album of the same name. And hey, New Year's Eve is right around the corner. I hope you get a little wild and reckless. And I'll see you at Antone's on February 22nd. We'll watch Blitz and Trapper together and celebrate KUTX's fifth birthday. And it'll be awesome. You can find the details at KUTX.org. And that's it. You've come to the end of another episode of This Song. This song is a production of KUTX 98.9 in Austin, Texas. This episode was produced and edited by David Sanger and me, Elizabeth McQueen. The interview with Brian was recorded by Cliff Hargrove, and the interview with Eric Early was recorded by David Alvarez. Aaron Waltz is our social media intern. Kelly Seal is our excellent intern. And thanks to Deidre Gott and Peter Babb and Todd Callahan for all they do for this podcast. And yes, it is true, our theme song is Mahout by Austin's own Hard Proof. Right on. Happy New Year. Talk to you next time.